I'm getting you a subscription to Forbes magazine because they just keep on nailing it. Oh, great. You know, I've, I've really been missing out because uh, they had the word about how great Silicon Valley Bank was before the rest of us got the word. Many people in the quote unquote crypto space brag about how they are senior editors at Forbes. And a listener on Twitter that I logged into again for the first time in a long time sent me a tweet with a montage of Forbes covers. And we've got Elizabeth Holmes of the Theranos fraud. We've got Sam Bankman-Fried of the FTX Ponzi scheme. Uh, the third one is, I think it's that WeWork guy, Newman, who's a Adam Neumann, who's just a total sociopath. Now, WeWork was sort of like a legal scam that just defrauded investors, so no one really cared. And then there is a tweet about how Silicon Valley Bank was talking up how they were on <laughs> Forbes list of America's best banks. Yep. They say proud to be on Forbes' annual ranking of America's best banks for the fifth straight year and have also been named the publication's inaugural financial all-star list. And then they got a nice picture from Forbes, like a, like Forbes's design team created like this badge that you can use on social media. Forbes 2023, America's best banks. <laughs> and that's how uh, Forbes operates, because it's a pay-to-play magazine, so you somehow compensate Forbes for coverage. Maybe you pay directly, maybe you pay money to go to like a conference that they put on, and they make money from that. Or even really just sharing their brand and being proud to be on their list, and then you as a business and a brand celebrating that the Forbes people put you on a list. Like That just adds credibility and credence to Forbes. It just supports their brand more. And so like even just doing that and being a good boy on Twitter and thanking them, uh, I think helps because it's a form of marketing for Forbes. I think that Forbes got sold pretty early in when it was clear that internet media was killing print media and someone bought Forbes and basically was like, okay, how do we monetize this brand? And that's when Forbes became this content mill that anyone could kind of become a Forbes writer and talk about how like basically affinity scam with the memory of Forbes as a serious publication. Because you've talked about how in the Linux space, you have people who use their Forbes platform to do product reviews and stuff and act oh, like yeah, they're really sure. serious. Yeah, you see this with any kind of brand that's been around for a while. You know, people will try to affinity scam on the brand name. And as the brand begins to decline and look for new ways to stay relevant on the Internet and monetize, they sort of open up the windows and then they open up the doors. And then pretty soon they've opened up the garage door and all these people are parking in there. And I have seen um, writers write for several publications like, you know, ZDNet's another one um, that used to have a lot of credibility that they themselves are actually maybe getting a piece of hardware on the back end for that review. Or in some cases, they're actually invoicing the company that they're writing about like for mark like to the marketing department and they're actually getting thousands of dollars in actual transaction cash there's no like you know silly intermediary where they're just a piece of hardware they get to keep in this case they're just taking cash and then writing about them on Substack and on ZDNet or on Forbes it's a big problem and it's i think been pervasive in the tech industry maybe just that's what i've seen the most maybe it's everywhere but it's not great and so i the fact that anybody takes Forbes seriously just kind of makes me laugh at this point and i think it's an interesting jumping off point because i kind of push back a little on the notion that Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate Bank were terribly run institutions. I think that their greatest sin 
was quote unquote, normal corporate thinking, in my view, because in many ways they did what they were supposed to do. They listened to the Fed, they bought a lot of US Treasury securities, and they didn't panic when the Fed started raising interest rates, which meant that their Treasury portfolio, market to market, was underwater. They also sort of concentrated their deposit base in certain industries because that's what was available. They weren't able to have a diversified product base because monetary and financial policy and rules have already concentrated banking into a couple too big to fail banks like Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America. And that means that the rest of the banks kind of need to be specialized. And as a specialized bank, your deposits are more concentrated, you're more vulnerable to bank runs. You know, it's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, if Forbes is endorsing you, you're probably a joke. On the other hand, I don't know if they're, they were terrible. In a certain sense, maybe they just got unlucky. Yeah, I guess I see what you're saying. They had to focus on a particular market and try to serve that market to kind of carve a niche out in a market that's dominated by some massive players. And I think there's going to be a lot of talk about how all the banks that failed were so obviously poorly run, but that kind of disguises the real issue, which is what if they weren't terribly run? And actually, a lot of assumptions about the U.S. banking system are wrong. And most banks are, in fact, quite vulnerable to deposit outflows and short-term insolvency. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on March 17th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, virtually at a distance with me, Chris, watching the banks this week, seeing what happens. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Like every other podcast in the Bitcoin space, we have suddenly become experts on banking, and that's all we're going to talk about. So this is really the the Banking Dad and Chris podcast now, right? Yeah. And then, of course, I started my new side action, the uh, J-POW fan club, where uh, we have a card and uh, J-POW face mask. In that theme, I now have the Janet Yellen for President Super PAC set up, so we'll be promoting that. I don't think she's thrilled that it's funded by Bitcoin, but she'll take the money. That's the theme. Everyone takes the money. This week, we're going to talk about... Signature Bank, the other crypto-focused bank after Silvergate that was nationalized on Sunday. Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which I think is the largest bank failure in, or second largest bank failure in U.S. history, was uh, put into FDIC receivership over the weekend. We're going to talk about how banks can actually be too safe. The events of this week reveal part of a reason why Caitlin Long's Custodia Bank was not granted access to the Federal Reserve master account, because in a certain sense, a bank that is too safe makes other banks less stable in our current banking system. We have a nice graphic from Lynn Alden about the history of account insurance limits from the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that plays into this. And Lynn, of course, has a lovely article on bank runs that uh, will help us understand what's happening this week and why we need to panic or not panic. In Bitcoin education, 
I'm going to ask Chris if uh, projects pivoting and selling ancillary goods is a good idea because Ronin Dojo is now selling Pixel 6 mobile phones flashed with Graphene OS. I don't know why I put that in Bitcoin education. Sorry. And we had a listener email asking about Lightning Network macaroons. What are they? Are they delicious? Can you eat them? We're going to get into that. And then we have some emails and boosts to get into. And that's our show. I thought they were a delicious cookie. And then I thought maybe he's talking about the French president. I was very confused, but I think we'll get there. Why don't we start with the French president? Because I thought that was pretty interesting news that Macron has forced a raise of the French retirement age through, I think, not even a full parliament. So it seemed like a a slight subversion of parliamentary democracy to force that through. And of course, Paris is on fire afterwards. Yeah, Boy, they sure throw down, don't they? They really, it makes me sometimes kind of wish the uh, people in the States would throw down a little more often because there's some serious things we could be protesting right now. You know, this was called the nuclear option uh, that if he used it, it would likely uh, force a no confidence vote and really create a lot of chaos. The goal of the law, it seems to be that the French pension system is under financial pressure, also partially due to the cost of you know, I think one issue is energy subsidies in Europe are very expensive. And so that's going to stress government balance sheets. The war in Ukraine has increased energy and food prices in Europe. That just puts general pressure on the economy and people there. And Europe has an aging population. And so one, I think, legitimate point is that many pension systems were founded 100 years ago when life expectancy was lower. And also our expectations for the comfort and level of service we deserve in our life was lower too. I think, though, even I think that that's the problem, though, isn't it? Is that why they're that's why they have to make this move? It's it's a response to just the overwhelming demographics that they're facing. So it seems like there's no choice. I mean, there's nobody's going to become a popular politician. But it seems like if you kept it where it's at, inflation would be even worse. Like you have to you'd have to print more money. You'd have to you see what I'm saying? Like it's an inflationary system either way. But the only way to get, dig their self out would be to reduce costs. And it seems like this is enemy number one, but it's, it's like, it's like, I forget the term, but like that, that it's like that special thing that you're never supposed to touch, you know? So it's, it's a huge deal. He's touched the third rail, right? Because when you start messing with people's pensions, they freaking lose their minds. And I think in most democracies, older people, especially who are retired, they kind of have more time to vote and they watch daytime TV where people talk about this sort of thing. So maybe Macron gets it. But I I think that's the point. Europe is more financially constrained than the US. And so when they run into when European governments run into budgetary problems, the UK tried to pretend with the Liz Truss government that they weren't bound by monetary gravity. They got confused. They thought that maybe they're like the US and they can run huge government deficits in perpetuity and the financial system would still absorb their government debt. And the financial system said, no, thanks, you can keep it. And this caused a breakdown in the UK government debt market. And because of the way that UK pension funds had you know, essentially made bets about the future direction of interest rates, they got caught with their pants down and were briefly insolvent before a massive bailout from the English treasury. I think that moves like this in France are probably in the same vein. Essentially, there's stress on the government balance sheet. They don't have the ability to run deficits the same way that the US does because of the exorbitant privilege of still 
printing the world's reserve currency. And so you end up having to raise the retirement age to control government budget deficits. And of course, everyone loses their mind and he'll you know, probably be voted out. They'll get a more populist politician. I think what surprises me about this in the part that's a little more nuanced is they had pretty sweet deal, the workers going. And so I could see why they'd be pretty upset. I was just reading some of the details here. There was a dozen of these so-called special regimes that were set up with different retirement ages inside them. Um, so, and they, they were set up to kind of protect rail workers, electricity workers and gas workers and central bank staff. <laughs> um, and some of them had really sweet deals like retiring around 50, 52, some really nice payments. So those are getting cleaned out too. So that's where I, so it's like the, the devil is in the details here. Like you dig into it. It's not just, and this is kind of the, this is kind of the interesting thing. It's not just increasing the age, but they're also basically taking away a bunch of the nice perks. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I can see why they are getting upset about that. So it does seem like they're attempting to do something. Um, it, but it, and it, it is deeper than just increasing the year, uh, the age. It's it goes deeper than that. I wonder how this will get resolved because they clearly have to make some of these changes, and the people are clearly going to hate it. And it makes it clear that these are political decisions. When you start to change the composition of these pension programs, there are winners and losers. And as you cut pension benefits, one of the winners are people who are still working because pension programs are generally pay as you go. So if you're a young worker in a advanced economy that has a social pension system, you're being taxed to pay for the pension of retired people today. And if you have a society where you like retired people, you you know, that's your parents and you're happy that they're getting a pension, maybe you're okay with this. But if you're in a society like the US where a lot of retired people have also have like made bank on a 40-year bond and stock bull market, they also own a lot of real estate, you can't afford real estate, you're having trouble with rent, you can't afford to have a family, and you're paying for the pension of baby boomers who keep on voting down infrastructure expansion, who keep on voting down expansion of, uh, you know, building homes in your area so housing stays unaffordable. At this point, you're kind of like, well, I don't really want to pay for these people's pensions because, you know, the pension system is going to be bankrupt by 2035 anyway, and I'm not going to get a penny of that money back. No one's going to pay for my pension. And that's also borne out by the demographics, because as we have shrinking working age populations and smaller families, it means that mathematically, there's no huge generation growing up that's going to pay for our pensions today, I say, as someone who is in their 30s. So, you know, it's mean, right, to cut people's pension benefits because that's what was promised to them. At the same time, who's going to pay for it? Right. Both you and I are screwed. By the time I want to retire, it's done. <laughs> I mean, it's not done, but it's I'm going to be getting I'm going to be getting way less than the cost of living. Right. I'm going to be lucky to maybe pay. Maybe it's going to cover my gas, maybe, or my electrical charging of my EV if I'm lucky. <laughs> you know, we all respond to incentives. And so in a world where pension systems work and we are not worried about our retirement, we don't need Bitcoin. But in a world where we can't trust the pension system to take care of us, we need another option. You know, thus Bitcoin exists and it's likely that option for us. If they don't want people bailing out of the system, maybe they should fix some of the structural issues in the system, right? Inflation is just one of many problems that drives people to Bitcoin. In terms of fixing the system, 
There's been a huge amount of news regarding bank failures and nationalizations in the United States this week. And it's not limited to the United States because there's also been talk about Credit Suisse, the Swiss international bank that's kind of been on a bad trajectory for several years now, also being under pressure. And uh, I think the Swiss central bank announced a special credit facility for Credit Suisse. But in the US, just to recap, last week, Silvergate, the crypto-focused bank that had been a big banking partner for Coinbase before Coinbase ditched them, they voluntarily agreed to wind down operations after they suffered a bank run and experienced uh, massive losses trying to liquidate a treasury portfolio. We talked about that last week. But since then, Silicon Valley Bank, a much larger bank that is less crypto-focused and more startup-focused, was also nationalized after a bank run. In addition, last Sunday, Signature Bank, the New York crypto and real estate-focused bank that had the uh, Signature Network, Sen, is it Sen or Signet? Yeah, you're thinking of the, uh, what was it, Exchange something yeah, network. It's so complicated because Silvergate had the Silvergate Exchange Network and, Sig- yes. and Signature Bank had Signet, the Signature right, Network. Right. Okay, you got it. You got it. And those are essentially real-time dollar settlement networks that crypto firms were using to settle dollars at the speed of blockchain settlement, which made stablecoins work. So Signature was nationalized on Sunday, which was very surprising because they had experienced outflows, but there was protests from Barney Frank, as in the Dodd-Frank Act, that Signature was shuttered not due to insolvency, but in order to send an anti-crypto message because the New York Department of Financial Services surprise nationalized Silvergate. And apparently when they dumped that on the FDIC's lab, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC was quite surprised that that had happened. When to put it up for sale, the requirement was for anyone who buys it, they must spin down the crypto business and not reopen it. Or I don't know about the reopen part, but they must spin down all crypto clients or something like that. It was a requirement. That's all the other, one of the other things that led to this speculation. Right. And that's crazy. You know, that's a that's a government entity telling you how to do your business. And there's not a specific law that they're citing. They're just telling you this is how it's going to be. That's not the way the U.S. is supposed to function. Yeah, you know, not the way capitalism is supposed to work either. We have the government essentially saying what you can and can't do business practice wise. And it seems a little suspicious that the only thing that they singled out was the crypto aspect of the business. And this also comes after, you know, months of the central banks all signing that letter saying avoid crypto like the plague and making their out list of reasons. Um, So it just seems like it's all part of a greater action to just sort of crush the banking sector around crypto as much as possible. And it's not I don't buy this the theories and conspiracy theories that the Fed intentionally created this situation with these banks to kneecap them. But I do subscribe to the idea that the Fed might take advantage of a situation. And why waste an opportunity like this? Never let a crisis go to waste, right? Exactly. So there's a lot here. And honestly, I think we should skip ahead to Lynn Alden's explainer on bank runs before we talk more about what's happened this week, because it's really easy to kind of get lost in the detail and not have a large perspective on what's going on in the banking system and why structurally bank runs and these insolvency crises are actually a systemic problem. And no, that doesn't mean that the entire banking system is failing. The TLDR is it means that it's 
further centralizing into the largest too big to fail banks. Unless something really crazy happens, which it looks like it's going to happen, where the the government finds some way to convince everyone that every bank is completely insured. So how does that work? Well, the first thing to know is that there isn't a massive insolvency problem in the U.S. banking system. There's about $23 trillion of assets in U.S. commercial banks and only $21 trillion of liabilities. So assets are higher than liabilities. So it's not like the banking system is totally insolvent. At the same time, the actual deposits in U.S. banks are probably around uh, $5 trillion or five, three to $5 trillion with only uh, $100 billion of physical cash. So, you know, when you start thinking about that, you're like, well, well, that's weird. Like, (laughs) you've got $20 trillion of deposit liability, but you only have $100 billion of cash. What's going on there? Well, the deposits are backed by loans. They're They're backed by government securities. And the issue that's happening with these bank runs is that when there are massive withdrawals from banks, they have to start selling their asset portfolio. And as we all know, if you've ever tried to, you know, sell massive amounts of crypto, there's slippage when you make a sale. And what's happened in particular is that banks have been encouraged to load up on safe and sound and liquid U.S. government treasuries. But because the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates faster in the past year than at any other point in human history, as interest rates go up, all of those government securities that you bought two or three years ago at a much lower interest rate, they're deeply underwater. And so when you sell them, you take 10 to 30 to 40% losses selling them. So if that's the case, well, why didn't we say, well, these these banks are already bankrupt because they can't immediately sell their portfolio to cover their deposit liability? The answer is there's some accounting rules in play because it's not particularly frequent that everyone wants to withdraw their funds from a bank. That basically kills any bank. And so your bank essentially has one part of their portfolio, which is their market to market, their for sale securities portfolio. And then they have another part of their portfolio, which is their held to maturity portfolio. So what they do is all of these bonds, these government bonds that are offering an interest rate much lower than the current interest rate, these bonds that if you sold them, you take a big loss, they just put them in their held to maturity securities part of their balance sheet. And then, okay, you're good. Just hold that to maturity. The problem is, I've heard it said that you cannot purchase interest rate protection. You can't essentially arbitrage the interest rate differential on this held to maturity section of your portfolio. And so if you put securities there, from a accounting perspective, it makes your bank look solvent, but it means that you have a lot of unhedged risk if depositors start withdrawing funds. So part of the problem is that there are some pretty complicated accounting rules about banking that sort of encourages risky behavior. How, uh, how am I doing? Is this, is this completely? No, this is great. You're on a roll. This is it's crystal clear. So what does this mean for banks like Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature? These are smaller banks. They're considered regional banks in the United States. And regional banks are, by definition, not systemically important. They don't have the same sort of access to the Federal Reserve. Their board of directors doesn't necessarily 
have lunch with U.S. senators and Congress people every week. They're less politically important. And so that means that they're okay to fail, whereas J.P. Morgan is not okay to fail. And so this is a problem that we've kind of inherited from the 2008 bailouts, where there are different levels of bank. There's this thing called the GSIP, a global systemically important bank. And if you're a huge bank, you're a GSIP, and you're so, quote unquote, important to the global financial system that you'll never be allowed to fail. And that means that if I have a deposit with J.P. Morgan, I know that even if it's not technically insured by the $250,000 FDIC limit, it really is insured. Because if JP Morgan was allowed to fail, so would democracy and we wouldn't have, you know, power and running water in a month after that happened, you know, maybe. Like it'd be so catastrophic that the failure of a GSIB could, you know, literally destabilize society in advanced countries, potentially. That's how catastrophic these bank failures might be. So that means that there's this problem because when everyone's feeling fine about banking and doesn't isn't thinking too hard about how banks actually work, then you know we can use smaller banks. And smaller banks have a lot of advantages. For example, I use a small credit union in my city and they have a bunch of branches. It's very easy to talk to people there. If you go to their branches, there's always someone who can talk to you right away. And if you go to, say, Chase, there's five people in line to talk to the one person who is doing customer management. And so that's kind of a metaphor for the fact that these big banks, they they have a pretty bad customer experience and they're quite inflexible because as a larger company, they kind of have stricter internal control systems and stuff. They're not able to kind of give you personalized solutions in the same way that a smaller bank can. And we've talked about this before. There is a lot of research that suggests that smaller banks lend to smaller companies, bigger banks lend to bigger companies. And that kind of makes sense intuitively. So, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, which failed, they did a lot of business with startups and everyone who did business with them loved them. They could get people on the phone easily. They they understood how startup businesses worked. 40% of American startups bank with Silicon Valley Bank. They really got that industry and were super helpful and made it easier for those businesses to interact with the banking system so they didn't have to like work hard at it and have dedicated people just to manage the banking relationship, which now they're going to have to do when they move to JP Morgan because JP Morgan, you know, is not going to fail. They got babied over there. I heard a story from a VC about because one of the things Silicon Valley Bank would do is also cover their mortgages since a lot of them didn't qualify for traditional mortgages. And the banker, as they're finishing up the mortgage paperwork, brings the paperwork over to this guy's house with a bottle of wine. They sit down and they drink wine and they sign the paperwork. That's the kind of white glove service that they gave to these, you know, these startup founders and whatnot. Like they really pampered them. And Jesus, who doesn't want that? Like I would love to have businesses that bring the paperwork to me, bring me a bottle of wine, give me a foot massage. I mean, that would be great. Who wouldn't want that? And if a company wants to do that, they should have the right to, right? Like, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Though, of course, we're all jealous of, you know, startup founders that get this kind of treatment, right? At the same time, we can see there is a place for these smaller banks. So what's happening right now is because since 2008, 
banks have all been encouraged to hold the same safe assets, U.S. treasuries. And because interest rates are being jacked up by the Fed in a, in my view, a slightly misguided attempt to control price inflation, it means that the Fed has systemically made the U.S. and I guess international banking system much more vulnerable to bank runs. And what's going to happen is as the Fed attempts to reduce liquidity in the banking system, that liquidity is going to come out of smaller banks that, in my view, are much more useful to the economy. And that's going to further centralize the banking system into massive banks that do not care about their customers. They, they are literally too big to care about your business. If you need, in your business needs, some sort of special accommodation, JP Morgan doesn't care. They're not able to do it. Literally F off. That's kind of how they've treated me in the past. This is not good. It's not good to centralize into massive banks that are not accountable to market forces. The goal, in my view, should be a financial system where we are okay with banks failing. We are okay with businesses failing. We don't celebrate it. I mean, we're not happy when a business goes under. At the same time, we know intuitively that creative destruction is good for the system as a whole. We live in the Pacific Northwest. There was a policy for 50 years to not allow forest fires to burn through, which they naturally, they want to burn through the woods here every summer because it's very unpleasant to be in the vicinity of a minor forest fire because it creates smog. It's, you know, it's not good for your health. At the same time, it increases the health of the forest and it burns out the garbage so that when you don't get these apocalyptic forest fires, but because that, that process was interrupted for 50 years, now when we have forest fires, they are apocalyptic firestorms that can literally burn anything. They can burn through Costco's. They can jump across parking lots. This is a metaphor for what was happened with the U.S. economy and the financial system. Since 2008, because this, the financial system has become so leveraged due to huge amounts of debt, there has been an attempt to prevent any sort of creative destruction, any sort of bank failure, any sort of fire burning out the garbage in the system. And at this point, our banking system is stocked full of the dry kindling of underwater treasury securities and other illiquid assets, such that when you start to get some deposit outflows, you almost immediately get insolvency. Yeah, because I mean, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was the 18th largest bank in the country. I don't know where Silvergate and some of the others were at, but uh, the 18th bank in the United States in terms of size created a domino effect that begun to have ramifications in Europe and in the UK just because the 18th largest bank had a bunch of insiders freak each other out on a Slack chat and they all started withdrawing their money. Of course, you could talk about the rates and all that, but if you just think about how instable that is, how fragile and brittle that is, I think it's a remarkable statement that the, the West could be taken out by a small regional bank like that. It's pretty scary. So Lynn says the quiet part out loud. Once you hear this, you can never unhear it. From a depositor perspective, banks are basically highly leveraged bond funds with payment services attached, and we treat it as normal to keep our savings in them. Yeah, try sleeping well tonight if you own a bunch of certificate of deposits or other sort of bank savings instruments. Forget about it. And what, what seems to concern me and what she touches on here and what you just touched on is we now seem to be structured 
from a government incentive standpoint with what they're willing to backstop and what they're not willing to backstop. We seem to have a market incentive to consolidate to these large banks. And they put out a joint statement earlier this week as we record that they are seeing such incredibly dynamic, massive inflows of cash that they are unable, the group of them are unable to keep up with the inflows of money that they are getting from these smaller banks. There is an incentive structure that has now been put in place by the FDIC and the Treasury that encourages folks to centralize. When you combine that with the tightening, it's also going to withdraw funds from these small banks. I don't know if we're really done watching these little banks dry up, especially the ones that went you know, long on these bonds and they're trying to now cover some of their withdrawals. It's going to be a mess. Now, I'm not ready to talk about it today, but the Treasury and the, I think the Fed has announced a new program. And I think that's a warning sign You know that when the Fed says, don't worry, we've got this, we have all the tools, but then they immediately start creating new tools, kind of lets you know that they don't really have a handle on the situation. But there's this new plan to essentially provide loans for underwater bonds. So instead of having to sell your 1% US 10-year treasury and take a big capital loss, you can lend it to the Fed for one year and the Fed will give you face value on the bond. That's not a market buy. That's breaking markets again and creating additional moral hazard because now you'll get activity where people will buy securities. You know, essentially some people will have access to this Fed program, some people won't. So you're creating the incentive, if I have access to this Fed program, to go out, buy a bunch of securities that are long dated and underwater for a discount, and then sell them or lend them to the Fed at face value. And now I've essentially been able to borrow money for a very low cost. And now I'm going to go do something incredibly speculative and risky with that. So you can see how every Fed intervention, while it attempts to stop on its surface, small and medium sized banks in the US from going insolvent, it creates more moral hazard and more incentive for risk seeking financial behavior. Right. And, you know, um, it just seems to me that if we consolidate things to these big banks, then the knock on effects of that are going to be less money for everyday people, less access to capital, I should say, and worse customer service, a worse experience with the banking system. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin apps and services and backend infrastructure just continue to build and innovate and make it easier and easier to get on the Bitcoin network or get on the Lightning network with apps like Stripe. So to me, it feels like they're going to just make a system that is more and more consumer hostile while trying to make it look like they're doing incredible things by talking about Fed now, or I'm sure, I'm sure eventually they'll sell the benefits and the convenience of a CBDC. They'll talk about innovations, but the reality is just the market is structured such that it's going to become more and more consumer hostile and that the Bitcoin alternatives, in my opinion, are just going to look better and better and easier to get access to, right? Like I can bank my young kids right now with Bitcoin. I can have them each have a wallet where they're stacking their allowance. I can't, I can't really do that. I can't set up my 10 year old daughter with a, with a bank account and have her get, you know, a debit card and start, you know, saving money. It's just a silly proposition at this point. Anybody can get banked with Bitcoin and the apps and services are going to be easier and more accessible while the traditional system is going to go in the opposite direction. And one reason that JP Morgan and the large banks are sucking deposits out of smaller banks is that these banks are safer. The bigger the bank, the safer it is. And this is part of the reason, I think, why a full reserve bank like Caitlin Long's Custodia, in a sense, can't be allowed in the current system. Because if a bank is full reserve and always able to 
suffer withdrawals without a loss or insolvency. It sucks deposits out of riskier institutions and destabilizes a fundamentally unstable, risky system. So part of the problem for the FDIC and the Fed is they need a way to make all banks look like they're the same risk. And I say look because they can't make all the banks safe. Even if, as is being discussed, the FDIC provides full deposit insurance for every bank in America, there's going to be an administrative time to sort of get that insurance in place or to to insure those deposits. So even if you're theoretically insured, you're still very incentivized to move to the largest bank that you can get access to because you're more certain that access to funds won't be at least temporarily disrupted. So this could be a weird situation where the Fed accidentally kills the banking system just through bad policy and incompetence. And then you get a CBDC because you've you know already wrecked the commercial banking system. I don't hear people talking about that yet. I think that's pretty speculative, but it is one thing that you could kind of see happening. I think it's happening right now. It's a slow roll, but I think we're building towards it. I was obsessed with uh, Jerome Powell's testimonies. Uh, he did two different sessions, a total of five hours, just answering Congress's questions. And there was a pretty wide range. You know, he, he says that uh, a CBDC is years out still, but that the Fed now system, which is going to enable instantaneous payments and settlements, should be live by July, he says. And it's going to be a game changer. And they believe it will undercut one of the most competitive advantages that cryptocurrency has, which is that 24-7 availability and instant settlement. Um, he says with Fed now, he doesn't see a reason for those currencies to exist, which will be, yeah, let's go. Let's see. <laughs> but they're talking about it. You know, CBDC is coming. But, what you know, one of the just to really touch on this really quick, Dad, is just I see a lot of Bitcoiners uh, online saying this is it. This is how they're bringing the CBDC. Brace yourselves. They're going to roll it out in a couple of months. It, it, Fed now is not a CBDC and we're not going to switch over to a CBDC in a couple of months. This is not what's happening. But I think it does lay the groundwork. Now, let's just touch on Signature Bank. And it's super confusing. All of the banks start with an S. But Signature Bank, if Silvergate was the West Coast crypto bank, Signature Bank was the East Coast American crypto bank. And they're very similar to Silvergate. I think they had a much better balance sheet. They'd manage their duration risk on their investment portfolio better than Silvergate. But they did experience outflows last Friday and they were nationalized last Sunday. The argument is that Signature was a going concern. It was a surprise nationalization. And this is really Operation Chokepoint 2.0 attacking one of the most openly pro-crypto, pro-Bitcoin banking on-ramps in the United States. I think that's a very reasonable criticism. And I suggest that this is another step in the move towards yield curve control, because I think yield curve control is the only reasonable policy given the pressure that high interest rates put on both the commercial banking system and on the U.S. federal government balance sheet. Should we review yield curve control, Chris? Yeah, because I know we've talked about it before, and I barely can remember and grasp it still, because we've, we've talked about so much of this stuff. So I could definitely personally use a refresher. Lynn has a great article on this where she talks about the 1940s. And in the 1940s, the U.S. was obviously at war with Japan and Germany for you know half of that decade. And the U.S. pivoted the entire economy towards wartime production, produced huge numbers of planes, tanks, bombs, bullets, and also 
nuclear weapons. And so there were massive government outlays, which resulted in a huge issuance of U.S. government debt. And there was a, an agreement between the Federal Reserve and the, which is a nominally independent central bank and the Treasury, which is part of the federal government and essentially reports to the president, that the Federal Reserve would set interest rates on government debt. They would intervene in markets for U.S. government debt, and they would set the interest rate on this debt below the rate of monetary inflation. And so what this means is that you could buy bonds that were safe, that would were backed by the U.S. government, which can print dollars to pay for debt, but you'd actually be getting a negative real interest rate. So you buy a bond, it's giving you 3% interest year on year, that's great, but actually inflation is 20%. And so prices are shooting up way faster than the interest on that bond. And this is a great deal because it means that the government can essentially buy a lot of resources and do whatever it wants with them, borrow at a pretty low rate. And then because inflation pushes nominal GDP up, because even if we only make 100 pizzas and that's our whole economy, if the price of pizza goes from $10 a pizza to $20 uh, to, to uh, $12 a pizza, nominal GDP has grown 20% that year. So if you're borrowing at 3% and your economy is growing at 20%, government debt as a fraction of GDP is reducing over time. It just looks good. You know, it's good accounting. It's a value transfer from savers and holders of currency, people who earn their wages in that currency to the U.S. government, if that makes sense. It's a little grim, but yes, it makes sense. And uh, a great way to pay for some things if you're the government. And this is how you paper over a bad government balance sheet. This is how you provide pensions to everybody. You keep military spending high. You bail out all the political insiders, all of the big banks. You can do all of that with essentially printed money, but there has to be a release valve, and the release valve is inflation. Right now, the Fed and the current executive administration in the U.S. seems to be pretty sold on reducing inflation, but as the banking system destabilizes, they may pivot. And my understanding of the way that money market curves are moving suggests that markets think that the Fed will have to pivot in the near future and interest rates will fall over the long term. And if that's the case, then I think we're moving into a yield curve control future where there's collusion between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury to keep nominal interest rates, the interest rates you see on loans, lower than the rate of inflation, which is the ultimate value transfer from savers and wage earners to borrowers. And if the largest borrower are big institutions and the U.S. government, then it's a transfer of wealth from everyday people to the politically powerful in our society. How does Signature Bank tie into that? The answer is that in a system of yield curve control, money flows out of your economy because money is like water. It likes to go downhill to the place where it's treated most kindly and yield curve control abuses your purchasing power. So for a system like this to work and to prevent all of the capital leaving your economy and a total failure of your currency, you need to close the exits. And in wartime, that's very easy because in wartime, generally, uh, there's closed capital accounts. You're literally not allowed to take money out of the country or wire it to a bank in another country. So there's no place for your money to go. It can be abused with the yield curve control. 
Signature Bank, Silvergate Bank, these are on-ramps to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Bitcoin is a system where once you get Bitcoin, no one can inflict yield curve control on you. No one can control the supply of Bitcoin and uh, abuse your purchasing power. So whether or not this is a stated policy, there is a need to prevent on-ramps to crypto, on-ramps to Bitcoin, if you're going to abuse purchasing power in the fiat economy, in my opinion. You know, we've seen some stories about banks announcing new caps on the total amount that can be moved when you're like doing an ACH transfer to a crypto exchange. And I remember looking at the numbers thinking, well, I don't care. That doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm never going to I'm never going to move $100,000 of, you know, via ACH transfer into a exchange account. But then I, I thought, well, perhaps it's to prevent large sums of money from quickly leaving the system. You know, if you put these limits on how much people can transfer to an exchange and they're really high limits, you're not you're not trying to prevent average people from putting five, ten thousand dollars into Dogecoin. You're trying to prevent the rich from moving large sums of money quickly into a cryptocurrency. And if you've centralized wealth in your society, then though that's where most of the wealth is. And that's been the trend for the past, well, certainly the past 15 years in the US, but even further, if you look at it from a tax policy standpoint. Since the 1970s, taxes have effectively increased on people earning less than $200,000 a year in the US. And for those earning above that, tax rates have fallen very, very low. This is a social policy to move money up in society. It's not even necessarily a big master plan. It's just sort of the way all the incentives stack together. And it's the fact that those are the very people that are running all of this and making decisions. I mean, literally, we now know that the decisions of what banks are going to have unlimited backstopping comes down to essentially what Janet Yellen, the president, and a few other members of the Treasury decide. They're handpicking what banks get infinite government backing and which ones don't. It's not like some decision by Congress. It's not based on some law. It's they get together and they discuss it. And it, that to me is very frightening. Right. These are political decisions. And this is why we, I think, talk about how Bitcoin is a political technology. Money is a it's a social consensus. It's inherently political. And so like it or not, if you buy Bitcoin, you're making a political statement. People might interpret it in different ways, but there is a political element to money and what you do with it. Just to be quite pedantic, I think one fact that can be missed in all of the news is that the first thing that happens in a bank run is that deposits start to leave the bank. Cash balances start to be spent down, not necessarily withdrawn, but at least spent and not replenished at a increasing or stable rate. To me, this seems like maybe there is an economic problem. And regional banks that had exposure to crypto companies and startups were the first place that this problem manifested itself because these sections of the economy move a little faster than the more traditional industries. They tend to be more speculative. And so they boom and bust much faster than other businesses. So the fact that funds are flowing out of the banking system to me suggests that the recession narratives, the deflationary signals from euro dollar markets, which are market signals that institutions like the Fed do not follow, but are followed by traders, by market participants who need to make money. So they tend to be more sensitive to this information. There are signals of monetary deflation. Asset prices 
falling. Financial issues inside the financial economy that are not expansionary, that are not stable, that suggest contraction. I think that bank runs in a contracting environment are consistent. And so to me, this suggests that we're likely to be in a recession and probably seeing a recession deepen in the future. I also think that Arthur Hayes' piece on the new Federal Reserve and Treasury lending facility, which is called BTFP, which honestly sounds like by the effing pivot, is straight up yield curve control and a more potent form of financial expansion, potentially, than quantitative easing. As we've talked about previously, quantitative easing is a program where the Federal Reserve buys assets from certain approved counterparties, puts them on the Fed balance sheet, and gives those counterparties a thing called bank reserves. Bank reserves are an accounting entry at the Fed. They can be used for some sort of requirements to hold safe assets, but they don't actually go out into the financial system. They're not fungible. They're money that only counts when you're dealing with the Fed. It's monopoly money. It's not really that useful. However, the issue of U.S. banks being encouraged by the Fed and regulators for over a decade to buy government bonds because, on the one hand, a lot of government debt was issued and needed to be bought. On the other hand, there's no credit risk. There's no risk that you won't be repaid in dollars when you buy a U.S. government bond. At the same time, as interest rates were falling and remained low, near zero, you had massive duration risk. Duration risk is the risk that interest rates rise again in the future. And so the entire U.S. banking system is apparently exposed to something like $640 billion of unrealized losses due to this duration risk blowing up, which is entirely due to the interest rate hikes on U.S. treasuries that the Federal Reserve has enacted over the past year. The presence of a new facility that can take any amount of U.S. government debt that is held by a bank and convert it into fungible dollars at a relatively affordable interest rate is a game changer. The TLDR from this week is that if you're a large company, you'd probably be crazy to have uninsured deposits in regional banks. So you're going to want to move those deposits to JP Morgan and too big to fail banks. At the same time, systemically, that creates the same problem that killed Silvergate because Silvergate had massive deposit inflows during a period of low interest rates. And so they had to buy U.S. Treasury bills, which then deeply turned against them as interest rates rose. So banking today is kind of a game of whack-a-mole, which bank is going to fail next? You know, this might even drive Bitcoin adoption because even though Bitcoin is volatile in terms of price, you don't have any custody risk on it. And custody risk seems to be the thing that people are trying to reduce right now in the traditional banking system. Boy, I, I guess every time this kind of news happens, it makes me think, man, I'm really glad I'm self-custodying my Bitcoin. You know, it does. It, it's not the only reason I stack Bitcoin, but there is a bit of a hedge against banks losing money or things just going really sideways. And just it's nice to have something that's outside of that system that's run by code, not rulers, not politics. And uh, it just gives me a little peace of mind while all this chaos goes on. Speaking of peace of mind, 
Does running Graphene OS on a Pixel mobile phone make you feel less concerned about your personal information leaking as you use a use that device? Yeah, I think it does. You know, because I don't I don't do any account syncing now to Google. I do all my backend like CalDev, CardDev, all that stuff to Nextcloud on my own infrastructure. So I feel better about that. And then I also don't use Google Maps or Waze as much as possible. Still have to from time to time. And then I combine that with going into Google in my account settings and telling it to do the most frequent removal of, you know, location history and account history, that kind of stuff. So I kind of combine those. And and then there's the kind of, I'd say it's a secondary benefit, but it's nice to know that I can use a modern mobile phone that isn't dependent on an ongoing SSL connection to a billion dollar corporation that just wants to figure out new ways to monetize me. So I like it for those reasons too. Uh, I have it on a Pixel 7 Pro, Graphene OS, and it's, um, you know, it's not perfect, but it's pretty great. And I don't really miss all the extra stuff that Google now puts in the OS. And a lot of it, a lot of that stuff, like the camera app and that kind of stuff, you can get via the Play Store. And with Graphene OS, you can have a sandboxed Google Play services and Google Play Store. And they have no more rights than any other average user app on your phone. In fact, Google Play must ask for your permission before it installs an app, just like when you sideload. And it's glorious because you can use the very best that you, you know, the stuff you just got to have from the app store, like the Strike app, for example, and um, use the F-Droids repos for all the other stuff. And uh, just just have less and less connections to Google as time goes on. And we're bringing it up because the Ronin Dojo, which is a company that builds Bitcoin node boxes and will sell them to you, they have a new product where they will sell you a Pixel phone with a privacy OS built into it. And they have two options, Graphene that both you and I use, and also Calyx OS, which our friend Seth for privacy is a big fan of. Yeah, I don't I don't like Calyx OS as much simply because uh, the micro G service implementation they have, I think, does potentially have some inherent security vulnerabilities and does potentially allow for more tracking, whereas the sandboxed Google Play services and whatnot on Graphene OS, I think, are a superior implementation and protect privacy better. But I think they're both really great operating systems. But, you know, yeah, that's the first red flag as far as I'm concerned. Offering two different operating systems, it's kind of like why I avoid Bitcoin wallets that also offer altcoin support. Because you, you think it just splits the attention, splits the focus of the project? Super great implementation and excellent support require focus. Right. And I mean, I think that companies like Ronin Dojo that sell node components, it's neat. They sell some pretty good material. That said, it's all open source hardware, and then they custom print a case that makes it look nice. So for someone like URI, I think that we would probably be not so willing to buy it because we just do it ourselves, kind of, and deal with a slightly more rough-looking piece of hardware. I mean, because, you know, the like the fully tricked out node that they sell is like 700 bucks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it looks good and everything. But at the same time, the hardware inside that board, you can buy that board for like a hundred bucks. So it's like, it doesn't feel like a good deal for someone who's comfortable mm. kind of putting the components together. Like the cost there is the handling. There's people that got more money than time. God bless them. I'd love to be in that position. And they just want to buy a solution and plug it in. I, I like that there's people out there offering it. I do think what the Bitcoin node space needs is like a $300 option, 
right? If it was $300, I don't think we'd be balking at it. When it's almost $800, it's like, oh, okay. But at $300, (laughs) like you've really got to have some economies of scale there. You know, it just seems that even Bitcoiners are hesitant to... Well, that's money you could use to buy sats. You know, it's like spare money goes to sats. (laughs) I think it makes sense to add a privacy mobile setup at the same time like i feel the real killer app is selling a node and a phone together so that your phone pairs to your node and only uses your like you know if you make that super easy and seamless that's just a a killer self-sovereignty combo yeah like you buy a kit and they've set it up so after you get the phone you log into it you get it set up and then like you you open up your node and it's got a qr code and they've got the apps pre-installed with their image or whatever maybe people wouldn't want them to touch an image but they make it really smooth for you to pair those two devices together while you can still trust in the security of the image of the os oh that'd be great now that'd be worth 800 bucks that'd be worth more than that because the thing is is the pixel 6 and the pixel 6a while great phones i also have a hard time justifying nearly $800 for the six. And then if you want to buy support for one month, it's another $100. And I understand they got to make money. And I actually do think that there is a genuine space for somebody to come along and offer preloaded graphene OS devices. I'm surprised it's not happening already. I guess maybe because it's a little hard to make profit and it's really not that hard to install graphene OS. But I hope even though it's clearly not for me, I hope they can find enough customers that they iterate on the idea a couple of times. Right, right. And so the Samurai Ronin community is known for really going after people on Twitter. So after potentially throwing shade on your project, please be kind. We did boost you without a sponsorship. So, you know. Yeah. And again, if you've got like, say you get the 6A, if 450 to $500, you know, after all said and done for a phone that comes preloaded with a secure OS that you can feel comfortable about and you need a new phone anyways, again, maybe you've got a little more money than you got time and you don't want to wipe the phone and load it with the OS and figure out how to get that going. Maybe 450 to 500 bucks ish isn't a bad deal for a 6A for you. Yeah, that's a good point. No shame in that game. Yeah, the time involved. Yeah, and if you're especially if you're like, you know, it's been interesting because I've been talking about my graphene OS usage on the Jupiter broadcasting shows, and I'm hearing from a lot of iPhone users that want to switch over and they're looking for something that is say, uh, safe and private, but they don't have years of experience flashing Android devices and using ADB and trying different ROMs. Like they're just completely new to that. So I could see this appealing to those types of folks that are ready to try something. They want to get a high end Android phone. This is ready to go. Just my advice would be get it with Graphene OS. Although I always hear from the Calyx fans. So <laughs> do your own research, I guess. We had an email which mentioned macaroons, which is a technology used in the L&D Lightning Node. I think all Lightning Nodes use macaroons. We just thought it might be interesting to link to the Lightning Engineering documents on macaroons and just kind of an opportunity to talk a little bit about Lightning Nodes and how they work and why you need something like a macaroon. So a macaroon is very similar to a cookie. I think most people use the internet are familiar with cookies. Cookies are these little files that websites drop in your browser. They store some persistent data that helps the website identify your browser and maybe remember the pages you've visited or 
information you've entered into a website and you know just essentially help the interaction between your web browser and the web server that's providing you with this website run more smoothly. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to think of it. I mean, they're also, I think, used just internally for the system to keep track of certain things. Like there's multiple types of these delicious little macaroons and uh, some of them are used for like public communication channels. Some of them like with L&D are used for like figuring out if it should be in certain modes or whatnot. So I think you could get complex, but that's a pretty good overview. Bitcoin nodes don't need cookies or macaroons. You know, macaroon is obviously just a, a type of cookie. And so that's kind of how the lightning language differentiates between the cookie standard and you know, web two traffic, but Bitcoin nodes, which live underneath lightning nodes, they don't need cookies or macaroons to interact with the Bitcoin network because Bitcoin consensus is done at the node level. And while nodes talk to each other to get transactions and blocks, they don't like need to perform peer-to-peer operations that involve kind of sensitive data to the node. Whereas with Lightning nodes, when you pay a Lightning invoice, your Lightning node needs to talk to the receiving Lightning node. Like they need to handshake. And that's kind of the difference between the Bitcoin network that can achieve global consensus with 10 minute blocks and the Lightning network that can perform instant payments. You know, there's a level of interaction and communication with Lightning nodes that is much faster and more complex than with Bitcoin nodes on the Bitcoin network. Do you think that's too vague? We don't want to scare people away with the details. It's like same thing with like self-custodial services. Like you can really go in deep, talk about all kinds of different setups and multi-sig and whatnot, but it kind of almost scares people away. (laughs) Right. Because the way I think about lightning nodes is lightning nodes are hot wallets. They're like web servers that are out there talking to other lightning nodes. They're doing a lot of activity. You know, they have a lot of interaction with other yeah. lightning nodes or things just, just that talking just like gossiping as they call it yeah and, and you know and so they're talking to a lot of things which they think are lightning nodes but there could be adversarial things communicating with lightning nodes and trying to probe them trying to exploit them you know there's it's very complex and so that's part of the reason why i wouldn't feel comfortable with a huge amount of funds on a lightning node because what a lightning node is doing is very different than what bitcoin nodes do. And that, I think we forget it now. But one of the initial criticisms of Lightning was that it was so different than Bitcoin. It was even hard to grasp for many Bitcoiners. Jeez, I love it. I am so excited about Lightning. I do do think it is complex if you come to it, but I think the best way to figure it out is by doing, which is sometimes a little challenging, but in figuring it out, you kind of you kind you kind of start to put the pieces together. And ultimately, what I love about it is it creates ultimately what I love about it is really the end user experience, if I'm being honest, because it creates a joyous, instantaneous payment experience that feels magical even today, having used it now for about a year. I'm still just blown away when I do a lightning transaction for an for like a in in real life situation like phone to phone, like buying gifts, receipts or gift certificates and stuff like that. It goes so fast and you see it light up on the other person's phone immediately. And you think about all the things that had to happen on the back end to make that possible. Um, I love it. I love that end user experience. And the fact that it can sit on top of something as safe and sound as Bitcoin makes it a killer app. That's right, because Lightning is a protocol. Lightning can live on top of other chains. So I know there was talk a while ago about Lightning on Monero. I think that Lightning can live on top of the Bitcoin 
liquid side chain quite happily. So you could get weird situations where you have lightning nodes that are talking across different chains. That's a theoretical thing that could happen. And I think it actually might lead to some of the complexities that plague our traditional financial system, because there are liquidity and market functioning problems that multi-chain implementations could introduce. So fiat banking and these traditional financial system problems, you know, they're not all just fiat is bad. The truth is that as a lot of people start doing different things that are interesting to them or make sense in the moment, it creates a huge amount of complexity, which can can break and cause problems, but it's also very exciting. It is exciting to watch too. It feels like it's an area where we're going to see a lot of innovation and it's probably going to happen pretty quickly, but it also has a real sense of community. And I know this sounds kind of silly, but I have channel connections to different podcast apps. I have channel connections to the podcast index. I have channels with listeners out there, like Bitcoin Lizard, who's boosting in later today. It's like you have almost like a whole other relationship with these people now, because like we have this channel that's between us and you can see the sats flowing in over the various channels. And, you know, every now and then I'll chat with some of them in Matrix and we'll talk about it. It's a it's a whole other layer of community on top of the Bitcoin network. I don't know if it'll always be like this, but it sure is a fun time to be involved from that regard. Remember, you can connect to the show, get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. I'm following up with emails and tweets, so sorry I've been bad at that over the past couple of weeks. You can also chat in real time. We've got a Matrix channel hosted by Jupiter Broadcasting. Check it out in the show notes. Pew, pew. Now, I got an email from listener Bob, and I'm sorry I didn't reply flying on the show. Maybe that's a little rude. But uh, Bob boosted in a while ago and talked about uh, how to send recurring boosts, sort of like a membership using Lightning. And in a sense, Lightning and Podcasting 2.0 is not really designed to do that. But you, Chris, found a service called Oak.Tree that kind of runs on top of your Lightning node and can be used to schedule recurring boosts. And Bob sent in an email pointing out that using a system like this to do a recurring payment, he needed something called a Lightning address that didn't really look like a Lightning invoice. It looked like an email address. And he discovered via going down a Lightning rabbit hole, a service called lnaddress.me that you can use to kind of create this identifier that can accept reoccurring payments. And I looked at this project and it turns out that you can also self-host it, which is cool. And our listener suggested that maybe we should set up an address like this to receive reoccurring boosts. And I think I think that's a cool idea. I haven't fully vetted the software, but uh, that's something that I'm going to try and do after the show. So uh, maybe that will be a way to have kind of boost memberships, if you will. I'm glad I'm glad Bob followed up. He and I chatted briefly in uh, Matrix about this, too. And I uh, I remember the time thinking, all right, I got to figure this out, but I don't I don't want to rely on a third party to host my lightning address because it's like an email address, uh, but for lightning and a lot of apps now support sending in this format. And this is always the way things go, right? We go from these long, complicated addresses to these more user-friendly formats. And uh, of course, Albi has support for it. Even the Bitcoin Beach Wallet has support for it. But a lot, there's they have a list on their GitHub and uh, BTC Pay Server also has support for it. I mean, the list is extensive. Um, and so um, it looks like it's pretty well supported throughout most of the apps that do Lightning. So I think it's worth doing. I think it's worth investing the time. Um, I am just looking right here 
at their self-hosting setup right now, trying to figure out how you run it on your own domain, because that would be my preferred, right? Obviously, it'd be like a Chris at Jupiter Broadcasting is just, if I could just use my existing email address and just make it lightning enabled, that would be a win. Yeah, very cool. We also got an email from Don't Lose It Bro, and I'm just going to summarize the email just so, you know, no personal information is lost. But we're talking about what is a sensible exposure to BTC? So our reader has heard one to 5% of your net worth. And in addition, how should you think about it if you're in sort of different financial positions? So for instance, does it make sense to have a Bitcoin investment if you're already a homeowner, you're nearing retirement, you have a retirement portfolio, maybe a pension, or is Bitcoin really more suitable for people who are renting, they feel like they will have trouble buying a house, getting on the property ladder. So who is Bitcoin for? I have a view on this, but I'd like to hear your perspective, Chris. I was just debating if I wanted to give my honest answer or give the rational answer that is the one I, I'd like publicly to be known. Um, Because it is it is so, so, so individual that it, it feels like, I, even when I tell you my perspective, um, it's not going to really be applicable to anybody else's individual situation. But, you know, I, um, I worked in IT right up until about the 2008 crash. And I had a lot of my kind of retirement ideas stripped away from me at that point in time. And then I went into small business where there's not really, you know, in a sole proprietorship or a small business with a small team, there's not a great option for healthcare or for retirement plans like there is when you work for an employer. Now, of course, if your business begins to make certain levels of money, you can make that kind of stuff work. But when you're a uh, plucky little internet startup that is making podcasts to a niche audience, you have less flexibility. And then when you combine just today's episode, if you just look at what we talked about in just this episode, but if you zoom out and you review the content of the last 67 episodes, I think what you see is a lot of evidence that the support systems that we rely on today won't be in place by the time I'm reaching my mid-50s to say nothing about my mid-60s. So I felt since I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, that I'm going to have to solve this problem on my own. And I'm going to either have to get really effing rich while I work and then just stack that cash and buy stocks or, you know, whatever the traditional approach would have been. Or I'm going to have to figure out what the next wave is and ride that. And to be honest with you, that's always been my move. You know, when I was a young kid or when I was in high school, I guess I didn't consider myself a young kid, but when I was graduating high school in the 90s and the early aughts, Linux and the web were the wave. And I was IT focused already. So I jumped on that and I re-architected my career and uh, became very passionate in it anyways and rode that wave for quite a while. And then when podcasting started about 16 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, I saw where that was going and I'd always wanted to be on the radio, but I knew I could never, I'd never at that point, you know, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was never going to go to school and I was never going to work my way up to become a radio DJ or something like that. Silly. But podcasting took away those intermediaries. It took away those barriers and those gatekeepers and it opened it up to TCP IP. It opened up the radio, it put radio on IP. And I rode that wave and I've made a business out of that. And I view Bitcoin in, in a similar light that it's, it's going to take probably the longest payoff out of anything that I've started watching since its inception and followed. But I've been watching Bitcoin since nearly its inception. I've been impressed the entire time. The reasons I remain impressed have only grown, not diminished. 
And I continue to seek out reasons to, you know, criticize Bitcoin and I don't really see anything in there and I see where the financial system's going. And so for me, at least at this point in life, I'm betting pretty heavily on Bitcoin. And so I take what available funds I can when I can and I try to stack some sats. Now, I don't spend all my money because I have to be a responsible father of three and a business owner, but I do try to set aside a little bit of money every week. And then when I've successfully set that aside for long enough, I'll go buy some sats. That for me is most likely a long term plan, maybe used as collateral for a loan or maybe just sold or maybe not. But um, I, I've never really once I learned about Bitcoin and, and the peer to peer nature of it, I, I realized it was always going to go up. Um, it's, it's a bit of game theory combined with human behavior, with scarcity and uh, the fact that inevitably Bitcoin's network effect and being an alternative system outside the existing crashing financial system just also becomes a valuable asset of Bitcoin and will draw more people, I believe. And then we'll start to see institutional investors. We'll start to see people talk about Bitcoin. We already do on in a lot of places. Uh, they talk about Bitcoin like it's just one of the other assets. I was watching CNBC this morning for some reason. They're talking. They spent three minutes talking positively about Bitcoin. And then they said, and now let's switch over to um, physical gold and uh, talk gold. And that's how they transitioned to speaking about. But first they led with Bitcoin and then they compared it to gold, which is a remarkable progression for the public discourse around Bitcoin, especially on these mainstream financial outlets. And as I watch that kind of stuff happen over time, to me, the price of Bitcoin going up is inevitable. The short term price may fluctuate, but the long term price go up. And so I'm betting on that. And I'm at this point in life, pretty much all in. I mean, I have other things, you know, I have a business, I have some property, a property. So there's other things in there. But right now, what I'm focused with my spare cash that I have in an extremely expensive time to live, I use it to stack them sats. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Bitcoin is in every financial ticker symbol on every TV network in the world. You always have the Bitcoin price. Um, I also, I just compare them. Flipped over to Fox Business, same thing. They, they treat Bitcoin, uh, they talked about Bitcoin and then they transitioned to talking about oil. It's, it is up there with gold and oil now, um, <laughs> for better or for worse. And then the other thing you can see in their actions is they're bringing on more and more pro well-spoken Bitcoin people that can articulate the value of Bitcoin to their target audience. And they could be choosing, the producers could be choosing to bring on anti-Bitcoin people, right? They could they could book Peter Schiff all day long. He's got his little studio. He's ready to go. But they're choosing to book pro-Bitcoin people. What I would add to that is if you have a retirement portfolio and you feel like you're approaching retirement, I think that Bitcoin could serve as insurance on your pension. I agree with you. And I would say I would probably not advise somebody go all in with Bitcoin if they're if they're near retirement. A family, close family member asked me about that about a year ago. And, you know, they're two years away from retirement. You just can't you can't recommend they go all in on Bitcoin because it's not a short term investment. I think that the most important thing when you take financial decisions is to not let your animal spirits run away from you. Because I think that in some ways, my Bitcoin path was very dangerous because there were moments when the it was the depth of the bear market and I hadn't done the research and I thought that everyone's talking about Ethereum. What's going on there? Like maybe that's maybe did I choose the wrong one? You know, I also bought gold and I don't view that as a huge disaster because, you know, gold was relatively price stable over the years. It's It's been bizarrely price stable for something that's been screwed up so many ways by the way the market has changed and the way I think the price is sort of controlled. 
I didn't have 100% confidence from day one. It was a journey for me. So I don't think that you want to get more exposure than your confidence and understanding is comfortable with. Because when you get out over your skis like that, you can regret your decision. You can get emotional. You can sell the bottom. You know, you don't want that to happen. So you kind of have to be kind to yourself and not take an allocation that stresses yourself out too much. Because life can happen too, right? You could be super convicted today and, you know, I'll hodl till 2035. Um, and then, you know, something could happen and you can you could need access to money. And the thing about Bitcoin is it's one of the few things you can get liquidity from immediately, right? You could sell your Bitcoin within minutes and get access to that money. Assuming you, your slow ass bank will get it in there <laughs> in your account. But it's a thing. And so it becomes tempting. And it's not just you need an emergency fund in case something catastrophic happens and you need to do a car repair or find a new home because, you know, a flood wiped out your apartment or something. Good things can happen too. You can get married, you can have a child and you can suddenly say, you know, living in a studio apartment doesn't work for my new lifestyle. I need a home, you know, I need a thing. You kind of want to build in that flexibility if you have the resources for it. So sorry for the long, vague response. I just don't think there's a good answer. And I would just add too, everybody has their own risk tolerance. And that's another reason why it's got to be kind of a bag. Sort of depends on you, right? Because in my world, I, I think I've discovered I have a high risk tolerance for some of these things. And so I'm just more inclined to take the risk. But some people that would eat them up, keep them up at night thing people say today is, do I need a whole Bitcoin? Every time I hear that, I think, Jesus, how things have changed. I mean, Chris, you probably remember when having hundreds or thousands of Bitcoins was no big deal. But I remember when people talked about, yeah, it'd be nice to have 50 Bitcoins because then that's a whole block reward, a whole original block reward. Like that's a cool number. And then sometime after that, people were talking about the the million club or something, where if you have 21 Bitcoins, only a million people in the world, if they're equally distributed, can have 21 Bitcoins. And then very soon after that, it was the 21 million club. You know, only 21 million people can have a whole Bitcoin. There are more than 21 million millionaires in the world. So if we're at all right about this thing being scarce and valuable, every millionaire wants at least one, right? Well, not every millionaire can have one. So what's the price? It's very high. So it's just wild that this is how the popular conscious on Bitcoin is evolving. It really suggests to me that even if you don't think about all of the sort of economic, technical scarcity reasons, just like emotionally, it seems to me that the human zeitgeist thinks that Bitcoin is worth millions of US dollars or something in the future. I think so. I've definitely observed that. I have watched this go from such low prices that losing 60 in a hack was not even, you know, it's like, nah, huh, geez, that sucks. Right. Whereas today I'd be probably depressed for a year. Now we see where I would love, 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 you know, to have like, I mean, to me, like 10 Bitcoin. Oh, God, that'd be incredible. Right. Like these numbers are being and, and then I'd be a crab. And if I had 10 to 50 Bitcoin, I'd be an octopus. And if I had 50 to 100, I'd be a fish. You know, and then if you have a thousand Bitcoin, you're a whale. Right. There's all these. Now we have these new terms. Sharks and dolphins. What are they? So a dolphin is 100 to 500 and a shark is 500 to 1,000. Okay. And then if, if you have 5,000 Bitcoin or more, 
you're a humpback whale. If you have if you have less than one Bitcoin, you're considered a shrimp. That's such a bad like they gave the sh- like the shrimp like they could have made it something noble that like, you know, is hardy. No, they had to go with the shrimp. <laughs> you know, there was that one guy who claimed to be a Bitcoin millionaire. He was the one who supposedly died swimming at the beach there where everyone dies that you would never swim at. Yeah, that, that guy's a what a Bitcoin sunken sunken ship. He was a nut job is what he was. He's living the good life and you and I both know it. I know. And honestly, we should never say anything bad about him because he will have us killed. And we really shouldn't joke about it because this is probably our exit strategy and we don't want to get ourselves in trouble. Oh, yeah. We're going on that vacation to that deadly beach, right? You know, <laughs> right, you know, right no, just think about it. Bitcoin. How ironic was it? Can you see people on Twitter talking about it already? How ironic was it that those two Bitcoin podcasters died in their trip to El Salvador? They died in El Salvador. And, uh, you know, and they, they just ironic. They were there for a Bitcoin event. They, they, they just they were mugged and uh, never seen again. So two Bitcoin podcasters. Well, wasn't that my strategy to get you to El Salvador? We, you were going to be kidnapped. Yes. <laughs> you know what? For the right amount of sats, it could happen. And speaking of sats, we have some boosts this week. Our first boost from Bitcoin Lizard, 25,000 sats. I think that's our big boost of the week. Core Lightning already has very robust backup features. Supports DB replication to a remote NFS mount. Whoa. It's easy to configure and provides a path to recover the node in an operational state if failure occurs. LND static channel backup allows fun recovery only. The node can't come back online. No wonder why Bitcoin Lizard likes Core Lightning already. That's awesome. Remote replication to an NFS mount? Yes, please. Hmm, that's good to know. I also have a channel with Bitcoin Lizard, and it's like we're all part of the same banking network. Yeah, and I appreciate it. You know, the inbound liquidity helps. Baffo comes in with 21,000 sats. Oh, I like that number. Baffo like Mulvad pay with BTC. Good now, VPN of choice. I agree. Mulvad is a great VPN, and I think they're also the backend provider to the Firefox VPN. Baffo send. Good boost. Good boost indeed. Adopting Bitcoin boosts in with the customary 4,200 sats. Thanks for the summary of the U.S. banking collapses. Too bad you recorded before the U.S. government decided to take down Signature Bank as well. Quite exciting that regulators are willing to demolish the banking system in an attempt to kneecap the crypto industry via their banking partners. But on the bright side, Bitcoin has clearly leveled up as we enter the then-they-fight-you stage and Silicon Valley gets to learn about counterparty risk, which Bitcoin doesn't have. (laughs) That's a great boost. Nailed it all in a boost. How about that? I think adopting Bitcoin just summarized the whole episode. Should we just delete it all and play this boost on loop? (laughs) That is really it. And uh, it does feel like we have firmly entered the fight you stage. And uh, I love that it's starting with a Bitcoin price rally. We'll see where that goes. But I'm just sitting back and popping the popcorn. Faraday Fedora comes in with a row of ducks. Can we get a self-hosted crossover between the Bitcoin dad pod and uh, going deep into and around hosting your own nodes and whatnot? A a self-hosted node special episode, huh? You know, I got to be honest, this is probably an area I don't have enough experience because I've used Umbral for 90% of the node setups. I've experimented and tinkered with the other ones and inevitably, you know, Umbral was the one that took off and now it's in production. So I have just stayed there. I feel like I'd be more qualified maybe after I've set up a Nix Bitcoin node or built one from scratch. You know what I mean? You know, I've tried to do the Nix Bitcoin node a couple times and I just don't 
love it for the hardware setup I have. So maybe you should do the Nix Bitcoin node. I'll deploy the BTC pay server stack and then you can get Alex to do something else. <laughs> I've been I've been slightly and gently nudging him because the self-hosted audience community loves lightning, loves the whole thing. And I'm trying to get Alex on board, but you know, for him, he just, it hasn't clicked yet. Qatar boosts in 7,777 sats. I've seen several formerly reputable Bitcoiners shill questionable projects over the years. Oh my God, this is so great. We're going to have a lot of goss here. Eric Voorhees, what did he shill? Just um, Avalanche, I guess, and Thorchain. Yeah. Roger Ver, Bitcoin Cash, of course. Jeff Garzik, what did he do? He became kind of a big scammer, right? I could look. You're better with the names than I are, but I could I could see if the Googs machine knows. He likes to build things, according to Google. He's the uh, co-founder of Block, B-L-O-Q, a blockchain enterprise software company, and serves on the board of Coin Center. Okay. Trace Mayer. Trace, of course, supported Armory Wallet, had the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, but then supported one of the privacy coins while dunking on CoinJoin, and he got canceled. So that was the Mimble Wimble guy. Vitalik Buterin. Ne- never heard of him. Never. That seems, is that somebody new? Vitalik was a founder of Bitcoin Magazine. Okay. Vitalik is an early Bitcoiner who then went his own way. So that's an interesting bit. The Winkle Vibros, yeah, they were Mt. Gox era Bitcoiners who then start an exchange and start leaning into altcoins and NFTs because that's how you make money on an exchange. The Lee brothers, so these were the guys who, one of them has Ballet Crypto, which is kind of like a, I think like a low quality crypto wallet. Uh, They also were behind BTC. C, BTC China, which was a mainland exchange, which was shut down. Awesome exchange. They were the best. You could show up their office, the bag of renminbi, and they just literally send Bitcoin to any address on the blockchain. They were the best. Sorry, Batar continues. A few might have been legitimate different visions. The overwhelming majority were, of course, centralized affinity scams. I've personally embraced the heuristic to teach new people to treat 100% of altcoins as scams. It's really the only way I can sleep at night. Well, Patar, I think that's a pretty safe heuristic because when you drop that down to 99% of altcoins are scams, things get really complicated really fast. Mm-hmm. Can't disagree with you there. Yeah, and especially in these times, all the other coins are going to bleed into Bitcoin for a while. So it's just now more than ever. It is a little risky. There may be something out there that's great or maybe something that's very purpose specific for you. But in terms of investment, you could buy Bitcoin and then you could pick up those other coins at a discount in a little bit. Mere Mortals podcast is back with a row of ducks. Eric is a really fascinating guy. His take is refreshing in that it always comes back to the first principles of libertarianism. Super focused when he makes his arguments and it doesn't feel arbitrary. FYI, I believe it is the Thor chain that he is more interested in, not Avalanche. Correct, correct. Yeah, he isn't, you know, he he is a very fascinating individual. And I, I can follow people that I don't always 100% agree with if I feel like they're true and genuine in their viewpoint and can articulate it well. I can find that intellectually fascinating. Yeah, don't disagree with anything there. Thanks for the correction, mere mortals. Anonymous boosts in 1,100 sats. Thanks for the detailed explanations of Silvergate and SVB this week. Mm. I hope that this episode was also to your fancy. Yes, thanks for uh, sending a little value along. Is it Jim from Matik? Is that what we decided? I think so. Uh, I love it when uh, people think ahead um, 
He brings in uh, two boosts, and uh, we have five th- uh, 2,501 and 2,500. And the first message is, thank you for the last time when you were commenting about Luke Smith's article on Matrix. I did love that. Uh, thank you for making us discover Simplex Chat as well. Mm, I agree. I've been playing around with that, too. They go on to say, I love to find alternative to WhatsApp and Telegram and Signal for better privacy. On the same note, what do you think about Session, a private IM? It's getsession.org. Behind it is OXEN.io. I don't know what it's worth technically. I think I'd rather go with Simplex Chat, as you mentioned, and then self-host it. If you want to learn about Session, Seth for Privacy has a great interview with the creator of the Session app. And I think that it's, it's technically fascinating, but what Session is doing is almost as good as Simple X Chat. And then it involves a lot of altcoiner nonsense on the back end with their Oxen.io chain. So I don't think that Session is long-term viable because the Oxen chain that they've built is a clear altcoin cash grab. It's not going to be around. And there's so much friction swishing between messaging apps that I just think that's such a huge red flag. I, I don't find Session at all interesting. Ah, very good. All right. So uh, Jim continues. On a listener's note, would it be possible to get a transcript of your shows? I'd like to translate some of your explanations to my uh, French blog and spread the word about Bitcoin versus altcoins and make people aware that ETH is just a big scam, but maybe one too big to fail for now. And about that intro music, could you make it just a bit louder? Because when you start listening to the show intro music, it's barely audible. Thank you, though, and continue to spread the truth on Bitcoin. John, John or slash Jin, whichever you want to go by. There is some stuff we're working on at JB to make transcriptions more accessible. And then in the meantime, if you have a little spare time and you want to try setting it up, there is Whisper CPU. And it is OpenAI's Whisper transcription that uses your CPU instead of GPUs. And so if you don't have a bunch of GPU resources, but you got some CPU cores, you could throw the Bitcoin dad pod on there and it will generate a uh, transcription for you until, you know, there's something that's more accessible in the podcast workflow. does require a bit of setup, but we've been experimenting with it behind the scenes and it's been pretty great. Again, it's you can just Google search Whisper CPU and you'll, you'll come across it. Yeah, I was actually thinking of running that locally. So if I spin up a Whisper CPU and I dump some podcasts in there, can I just throw that transcript into some field in like my RSS feed and it'll just work? Or do I have to do additional work? Because it creates an SRT like subtitle file. Yeah, I can give you two types of output. SRT is kind of like that standard transcription file. And I actually don't think the SRT file is formatted to the podcasting 2.0 spec. I could be talking out my rear end, but I think I recall it doesn't quite format it to the way podcasting 2.0 apps expect. But Whisper can also just put out a JSON file. And my understanding there is that the JSON file is in the correct format and can be read by uh, the podcasting 2.0 apps. In case of your hosting provider, they have an upload spot. And I don't know, maybe they have requirements and restrictions on what format they take, but in theory, you could be able to just upload that JSON file and it would make it available to the podcasting 2.0 apps. Okay, well, I'll try that for this episode. And if it looks good, then I'll try to continue on doing that. You know, obviously, I guess it doesn't identify the different speakers. I don't know if that's an issue, but maybe it'll be better than nothing. Yeah, it doesn't. I would imagine at some point in the future, it'll get that capability. And then in theory, you could probably batch retranscribe your back catalog. But in my experimentation, it gets you 85, 90 percent of what you want, which is you just want the information and you want to be able to search it. And that it does. It does fantastically. And and the podcasts that have transcriptions, I like it better than chapters. I really do. Because like in Podverse, for example, you can have 
have the transcription auto scrolling with the playback. And if you want to, you can just hit a sentence and jump back or jump forward. It works. It's more granular than chapter markers even. And then of course it's searchable. Is that the Podverse web app? Either or, either or. I mean, I use it on the mobile, so I, I probably shouldn't say either or, but I, I believe it would work on either. But I'm using it in the in the mobile app. It's just you you swipe over from the album art and it's just one of, you know, you'll have chapters and you swipe again and you'll have transcripts and there's just a little auto scroll button and it just does it. It's great. Nice. Well, thanks so much for the boost and the requests and the suggestions i do agree i guess the intro music is a little low so we'll try jacking it up and if anyone thinks it's too loud boost in and let us know <laughs> i guess it's better to err on the side of, of being a little too low with that kind of stuff you don't want to like shock anybody uh but i'm i am uh... I'm agree. I agree. I probably could come up a little bit. Jeff sent in a mega boost of 22,222 sats. I think that's actually our big boost. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the show. I am still learning how the stuff works and would like to move away from centralized accounts such as Coinbase. Do I really need to run an entire node for this? Can I just set up a wallet on a machine and keep my sats there? Albi works great, but I don't care to keep many sats in that wallet either. Any suggestions to ease the transition to ownership? Okay, well, we really should link to previous shows, but you don't need a node to take self-custody. A node gives you more privacy when you take self-custody, but all you need is a wallet. So the fastest way that we recommend is create a new account on a computer that's relatively secure, like, like a Bitcoin account, download and verify Sparrow wallet, and just create a Sparrow wallet right there on the computer in a separate account, and that should be relatively secure. If we're talking more than a Bitcoin, consider getting a hardware wallet. We really like the cold card. Blockstream Green Wallet is actually one of the cheapest hardware wallets. It's only $35. You can check that out. Blockstream Jade hardware wallet. Just search for that. Yeah, I completely agree. You don't need the node. I think the node is fun. And I think the node does add a layer of privacy, right? Because there's certain things that your Bitcoin client will need to look up. And if your node is the source of truth, well, not only is that just better because it's on your land and it's something you control and you know the hardware is secure and you know the software is good. And so there's not something weird and monitoring on there, but it reduces your exposure to other possible ways of monitoring and correlating activity. And things like Umbral, if you're not too serious about it, make it pretty easy and fun to get started. And one of the nice things about Umbral is they have that app store. And so you can just go in there and like de deploy a RoboSats app. And now you got a RoboSats front end that runs locally on your node that uses your node as the source of truth for the state of the of the Bitcoin network. And then you can, uh, you know, keep it all on your land. It's it's I love that aspect, but it's absolutely not required. I would start with self-custody and figure out if you want to go super complicated or if you want to go really easy and straightforward, figure out if you want something that's connected to an account or something that's completely offline and then determine from there, you know, what meets your requirements. You can always chat with me and then set that up. And then as you get kind of curious, then go deploy a node. Have fun with that. Just set aside about 500 gigs of hard drive space. I would say a terabyte now because you probably want an Electrum server if you want to have a wallet that does fast lookups. And you're going to want some room to grow. And is if dad keeps sticking all those JPEGs in the blockchain, pretty soon you're going to need more space. Keep an eye out. The Bitcoin dad pod inscriptions mint is coming. Just kidding. I, I even forgot what it's called. I think you mean a drop. I think you mean you're going to have a drop, drop soon. Okay. <laughs> Get ready to pay one Bitcoin for a JPEG of a lawnmower on the blockchain. <laughs> you got to get the first one. You don't want to miss out. <laughs> I just want to call out a couple things real quick. C-dubs, again, 
Awesome boost from C-Dubs, 10,101 sats. No message, but we see you. Thank you. We saw others out there like Blizzard had their very first boost they've ever sent this week into the show. It was below the 1,000 cutoff, but thank you to others out there who've also been streaming sats. We appreciate it. And we see you. If you'd like to send a boost into the show, you can get one of them new podcasting apps like your Pod Versus or your Fountain FMs. In fact, Fountain FM could be a nice little way to stack some sats. But I, I know people, they love their podcast apps. They are married to their podcast apps. If you don't want to switch apps, just go to getalby.com, top it off with a few sats, which you can do directly inside Albi using a service called MoonPay. And then you just send them sats over to the show via the podcast index because they've got a little embedded boost box in their web page. So you just do it all right there in the web browser. You find Bitcoin Dad on the podcast index and the box, once you have Albi installed, will be right there. And you just put your message in there, put your name in there and send it off. And you just sent a boost to the show. Easy peasy. Anytime you get a little value from the show or you want to support the production, that's a great way to do it. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, March 17th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here remotely at a distance as always, sometimes, often, usually with me. Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.